For our Thursday night, we, our series has been The Healthy Church, and so we went through 1 Timothy, and tonight we will conclude in 2 Timothy, and next week we will start in the book of Titus. And so I get the opportunity to speak on these last passages from verse 9 in chapter 4 to the end of the chapter. And so I will start in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Tross, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander Coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let me pray real quick. Father, we thank you for this time and this opportunity to open your word publicly and freely. Would you please um, bless us as we uh, just uh, try to faithfully proclaim your word and the message that is withheld within it. Um, Let it bless each and every one of our lives and our congregation to love you greater and deeper and let that turn into um, worship, Lord, that is done in spirit and truth. It's your holy name, ask and pray all of these things. Amen. So we are coming to the conclusion of 2 Timothy, and we are coming to the conclusion of the book as a whole. Something that is important to know is the context of not only who the author is, but what is going on, what is happening. So Paul is the writer of 2 Timothy, and he finds himself in prison in Rome at the time of his writing. And so thus, his writing now to Timothy, specifically to Timothy, is understood as that this personal instruction is written specifically to Timothy. Um, it has a context, has a meaning, has an understanding to Timothy. But nonetheless, for us today, it is still the Word of God. And so there is good truth and principles that we can pull from it. That would be a blessing for us to receive and to live by and to understand. And so then, with that being the context that Paul is in prison, we understand that when he says, Do your best to come to me soon, he is writing to Timothy, asking him to come and to visit him. The understanding, it's kind of argued, but Timothy at the time is in Ephesus, and Paul is getting in prison in Rome. So Paul is encouraging, exhorting Timothy to make a long travel to come and to visit him in prison. And we see that this is kind of oppressing, and uh, this, not oppressing, pressing time, if you will, and that this is potentially the very last sentences and words that Paul has ever written. That we know at the conclusion of 2 Timothy, very shortly afterwards, whether it's months or a year, Paul will be killed by the hands of Nero. That his imprisonment will be his last imprisonment, and that he will go to death for the sake of 
the gospel by the hand of Nero. So his urgency here, that the pressing of time, do your best to come to me soon, is there's a sense of urgency that Paul knows the day and the time and he knows what is coming. That although he's been in prison many times before, there's something different about this one that makes him think that he will not be freed from it. But also, the context of the passage we just read in the verses, we see that um, at the very conclusion, it says, do your best to come before winter. Winter is coming. And so you imagine being in a Roman prison in the first century. It's probably not very comfortable. It's probably not very warm. And so winter is probably very brutal. And thus that makes sense uh, when he proclaims and asks, uh, I, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. So we can understand the cloak would be a, a blanket, something warm to get him through the winter, if you so see it. The books and that Paul, even recognizing that his uh, hour of death is upon him, still desiring to use the most of his time in order to consume, to learn, to grow in truth and understanding and knowledge. And that is something to exhort us as well. As long as we have today, as long as we have time, we should always be seeking to grow in knowledge. And actually, on the other side of death, that's what heaven will be. Heaven will be an eternity of continuing to learn more and more about the Lord. There will be no day where education ceases to exist. But both in every day of this life and on to the next life, we will continue to grow in our understanding and knowledge and education will continue to go forth as the Lord reveals more and more of himself. But he also asked for the parchments. And so there's a lot of debate on what this word is, what it means, what it is he's asking. We know that Paul was a tent maker. And so a lot of people understand that the parchments are uh, resources that he has gathered, he's curry, that he continues want to, to work to provide for himself, to uh, make an income, to do something while he is in prison. So asking Timothy to come to him, to bring his cloak, to bring his books, to bring the parchment so he can still be active in the cell, in the prison cell. But also, we learn in verse 10, he says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And so commentators would majority agree that Demas here, it's not that he was a believer and he has proven to be an unbeliever, but rather all have agreed that Demas here is still a believer, that he doesn't leave or abandon Paul because he is not a Christian anymore or he denies Christ. But rather, there's some speculation of what it might be, and there's two of them I'd like to propose for us to consider and to wrestle with. The first one is that Demas is fearful of the suffering that is to come. Demas, having followed Paul on missionary journeys before, has probably witnessed the great outpouring of the Spirit, the gospel going forth to the Gentiles for salvation to come, probably miracles upon miracles of people being healed and coming to salvation and believing in the Lord. And now that Paul has got himself thrown into jail, now that Paul, again, rightfully is understanding that at this time, death awaits him. Right? Paul, Paul is expecting this. Demas, in light of the forthcoming suffering, decides to forsake Paul, to leave the ministry, to abandon the mission in order to flee to Thessalonica, to abandon him and to go somewhere that is safe. And thus it is um, a lot of ways that we as believers, even today, are still tempted by this very thing. And so the question is, are we prepared to suffer for Christ? Are we capable of it? Are we willing to? Um, scripture does not portray a prosperity gospel where to follow Christ is always perfect health or prosperity or success or 
wealth or any of these things, but rather scripture portrays time and time again that just as Christ suffered, we too ought to suffer. Certainly the human experience of living in a fallen world is a experience of suffering, but even more so true for the, for the believer. And we see this time and time again, we see this in Philippians as well, it is our joy, is our opportunity, is our pleasure that just as Christ suffered, our leader, our Messiah, the one who we are striving towards, just as he suffered, we, ought, we also ought to suffer as well. And thus when we consider Christ's suffering on the cross, the, the greatest suffering, the wrath of the Father poured out upon him in order for, for the, our punishment for our sin, for what we deserve, how can we, in light of Christ's suffering on our behalf, not suffer on his behalf? And certainly, it's as the, uh, Christ says, like, do not be surprised if the world hated, hates you, for it hated me first. And so thus, to follow Christ is to experience suffering, is to experience conflict, is to experience persecution, and put, uh, pushback from the darkness with, with, uh, against the light that is within us. And thus, as Christians, we should not seek suffering, but expect suffering. And thus, when suffering comes, we should not, like Demas, flee or, or run or abandon the mission or lose sight of our purpose, but rather to lean into it as Paul does. And to, as, as James exhorts us, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. For you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance, when it's finished its work, it will make you mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And thus, the Christian life is a life of suffering. It is a calling into suffering. Um, but thus, we are reminded that it's not an easy pill to swallow. It is a very difficult thing. And thus, even someone like Demas, who witnessed great ministry and great success with Paul, still fled, still abandoned Paul, still left him. So that, that's one hypothesis of why, why Demas left. Another is, uh, so being, a uh, because Paul says he is deserving and gone to, uh, in love with this present world. So uh, Demas being in love with the comfort the, of no suffering, the comfort of prosperity, the comfort of not having to experience the hardship that comes in obedience to Christ. But the other is that um, in love with this present world is that Demas has trade or he has work or he has a job or he has family commitments or he has something that gets in the way of his obedience to Christ, and that's living on mission and staying with Paul. And likewise, um, we very much can fall into this as well. This is a real warning for us to take heed of and to consider and to reflect on. It is our natural instinct to seek first our own selfish ambition and vain conceit. It's very easy for us to want our own success or to build up our own name or our own, uh, yeah, our own name or to our own pride, to our own comfort, to our own benefits. And thus, that is why when Christ comes and proclaims his kingdom, says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, it comes along with the cross. And the very purpose of the cross is to crucify our flesh, is to deny ourselves. And thus, all that we are, all of our time, all of our energy, all of our um, resources, all of our ambitions must be washed by the blood of Christ. All that we are doing, all that we are striving for, all that we are building ought to be so that we can see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And thus we should rightly consider what is it that we are building? Are we building upon the firm foundation of Christ upon which he is a cornerstone that will stand the test of fire and will last for all eternity? Or are we building something that is of twigs and straw 
that is vanity, that is worthless, and that when Christ comes to test it, will fall apart. And so that's what is it that we are building, what is it we are striving for, and we should take heed of the warning of Demas, who abandons the mission in love with this present world, choosing the world over Christ, and is then condemned. But it stands in contrast, Demas leaves Paul, but we see a handful of people. He says that he's, uh, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. He says, get Mark and bring him with you. And he says, Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. And so we see the, many of these people who we encounter in Acts and other previous missionary journeys of Paul have gone, they have spread out, they have gone to other places. And so what we see is that Scripture, uh, Paul testifies the intentionality of sending out people, of being on mission, of trying to reach the lost. And likewise for Christians, we like to um, spend our time with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We enjoy the fellowship of the saints, and rightfully so. However, we do live in a fallen and lost world. We can't just all come here and we lock up our doors and no one leaves and we don't let anyone out either. We are called to live on mission, to seek first his kingdom and to proclaim the gospel to the lost. And thus, if we spend only our time with believers, we are not opening up the doors to then live as witnesses and our light shine before us to the darkness of the world. Um, and so you could think Paul has gone on three, some people say four missionary journeys throughout Acts, and all these people could have stayed with them all together. They could have had 10 people, could have been a, a power squad. It could have been the all-star team. They could have just gone all together on a missionary journey and city after city just done great impact and ministry, but rather it's better for them to split up. It's better for them to spread out because the need is so great, and thus people must go forth to proclaim the gospel. And likewise, we should, yes, of course, enjoy Christian fellowship. Yes, be intentional about fostering our community as Christians, but we should also be intentional on reaching the lost, of trying to find opportunities and accesses to share the hope that is within us and to bring people from darkness into the light as well, rather than just stick together. Um, because again, that's what heaven will be like. That is our hope in heaven. In heaven, it will be every brother and sister under the banner of Christ coming together in perfect fellowship and unity once and for all, for all of eternity. But until then, it is our job to, yes, continue to foster that and build that, to bring heaven uh, on earth as is bring heaven on earth. No, as earth as it is in heaven. But in order to do that, we need to proclaim the gospel truth to those who are dying in the lost and fallen world. So you see, Demas has left him. Other people have also left Paul, but not in a way that is problematic or uh, an issue. And so then we come into verse 14, which is, Alexander Coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And so an observation here is that Paul names names. And so living in the context that we do in the Western church, in the name of love, in the name of unity, people do not like to be uh, diversive. People try to do all they can to uh, brush over sins or problems or issues and to put them under the rug and not have to deal with them. But what we see here is that there is a time, there is a place for names to be named. For people, Paul here is telling Timothy, hey, this guy, watch out for him. Be aware of him. 
what he, who he is and what he has done is extremely problematic. It's dangerous. And Paul rightfully names his name, Alexander the Coppersmith, to be aware of. Now, we don't know a lot about this man, Alexander the Coppersmith. And actually, interestingly enough, in Acts 19, it, it references him. It talks about him. There's a time that there is a chant, there's a worship going to the goddess of Artemis. And actually, uh, Alexander the Coppersmith is approved for his trying to, as a Jew, trying to cease the, the worship of Artemis. He's actually painted in a very positive light in Acts 19, almost as a believer. But something has changed, something has happened from that point of Acts 19 to where we are here now, where Paul warns the church, he warns Timothy, he warns others, to avoid this man for his danger. And so it's like, well, what is it that Alexander, uh, Alexander the Coppersmith does? We don't quite know, but what is made essential, was made evident, is that he strongly opposed our message. And so what is, the, what is Paul's message? What, what is our message? Paul is known as the uh, missionary to the Gentiles. And when we see the message that he keeps talking about, he keeps referring to the share, is the gospel truth. And so the, the message that Alexander the coppersmith is opposing is the gospel in of itself. There's something fundamental here, a first-tier issue, if you will, that Alexander the coppersmith is pushing against, he's fighting against, he is condemning. And so Paul, and not just privately, not just wrestling with it, he is openly and actively speaking aloud against the gospel in such a way that Paul says, Mark, label, avoid this man, for he will lead you astray, for he will twist the scriptures, he, he will give you a false gospel. And thus we see the seriousness of this. That, and so much so that Paul says, um, the Lord will pay him according to his deeds. Well, what was our hope as Christians? It's that the Lord won't repay us according to our deeds. It's that the Lord will not treat us as we deserve, but rather he treats us as what, he treat, what Christ deserves in perfect love and righteousness and unity. And so thus, the people in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, who get, according, who get treated according to their deeds are the wicked, are the unbeliever. And so here, uh, where at once Alexander Coppersmith was considered to be a Christian and doing something good for God, he is now portrayed as one of the wicked, one who stands opposed to God, who has a false gospel, who is at odds, and thus going against Paul himself, the, the great missionary, the, the one who has written all the New Testament, opposing his message, opposing the gospel. And thus we can rightly understand why Paul says, Mark, label, avoid this man, for he is dangerous. But again, there, there's a time and a place to name names. Because if we keep reading... It says in verse 16, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So who, who is it that Paul is talking about? It could be Demas. Um, we know that Luke is the only one who stayed with him. But again, Paul is in prison in Rome. And so our question is, are there Christians in Rome? And we would say, of course, the book of Romans. Paul wrote the book of Romans to the Christians in Rome. And the, in the first chapter, Paul says, I, I am overjoyed in verse 8 that your faith has been proclaimed in all the world. So it's, it's not just like there's a small church or a weak church. There's it, it, great admonish to the Christians in Rome and to the church there as to their faith and what it is they are doing. But now that Paul is in prison, that, that Paul is in isolation, he is under the hand of Nero, he's under the governing authorities, Paul says, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. 
the very brothers and sisters who I have fellowship with before, who I've written letters to, are nowhere to be found. They are not coming to minister to me. They're not bringing me cloaks for the winter. They're not bringing me books. They're, not bringing, they're nowhere to be found to, to care for me, to be there for me. So much so that he says, but all deserted me. And then he says, may it not be charged against them. So Paul does not condemn these believers and he doesn't name their names. He doesn't come upon them harshly. But rather we almost hear the, the voice of Christ. It's the Lord, they, like, forgive them if they know not what they do. Or, or the voice of Stephen as well. And likewise, he says, may it not be charged against them. So we see Paul's patience with these believers in a, in a um, season or in a time of weakness or a potential fear. Paul does not bring the hammer down upon them and condemn them and judge them and write them off. But rather he is gracious and kind. And thus we see the contrast of when it is a primary issue, when it is a first-tier issue, when the gospel's at stake, Paul is cutthroat. He draws a divine line. He says this, yes, here, no, there. There's no end of bus, no cutting corners at all. But then when it comes to more tertiary or a dealing with brothers and sisters who in form of weakness or, or in fear or do not do as they ought to, do not live obedient to God's word. He isn't the first one to cast the first stone, but rather he is to show grace and patience, saying, may it not be charged against them for them not caring for me, for them not being there for me. And so because of this, we see the beauty of what the Lord does do for Paul, even though he doesn't bring to him the body to care for him, to be with him, to be present in his suffering as he is facing death. Rather, he says, verse 17, but the Lord stood by me, and strengthen me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And so we see here that, again, it's so easy for us to um, champion people in Scripture that aren't Christ. And so here Paul is reflecting of his own struggles, of his own temptations. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed. And so when it says, I was rescued from the lion's mouth, a lot of people, we, we like to think like, oh, this is Paul being rescued from Nero. That as he is standing before Nero and facing the death penalty for his disobedience to serving Caesar, he is about to be rescued or saved from the lion's mouth, Nero. But we know that's not true. Church history will teach us that Nero, by the hand of Nero, Paul was killed. He did die. So what is it? What is a lion's mouth that Paul in prison is delivered from, that he is saved from. It is the isolation, it is the loneliness, it is the despair, it is the hopelessness, it is the fact that, again, he knows what is coming. And there's no one around him to encourage him, to exhort him to truth, to build him up, no one to point him or give him an encouraging word. He is, in a way, isolated. People have left him, people have abandoned him, people aren't coming to him. But, he says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, all the, uh, the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. And again, so Paul, the one who tells us that the Lord's grace is sufficient in our weakness, is here also exemplifying that. That Paul, the, the greatest missionary, the, the one to the Gentiles, is also in such desperate need of the grace that the Lord offers to build him up and to encourage him. And thus, it's, when he says, uh, my the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Well, we know, obviously, that Paul did not share and everyone heard the gospel from his mouth and that in such a way that everyone has 
heard it, he has proclaimed the gospel to every Gentile. But rather what it means is that Paul has been faithful to the end. That in, in all of his days, he has served the Lord. He has been faithful so that everyone who was meant to hear him proclaim the good news of the gospel has heard it. He's like a rag that, as we see, uh, we heard last week, that has been poured out, has been uh, drenched. Every drop has been brought out of his life of a faithfulness in such a way that he have the utmost confidence of what awaits him. Because then he goes on to proclaim, So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every, every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You can hear the confidence of Paul. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. The, the confidence that he knows what awaits him. That death is not something to be feared. Death is not something to be ran away from or, or shied from. But rather, it is the very doorway, the gateway that will lead him into the heavenly kingdom. And thus, um, as believers, we all too often have such a low view of death in such a way. That we view our lives as just this side of eternity and that's it. And as believers, we have the, the, a great hope within us that death leads and starts really what is the beginning for us in, in perfect fellowship and communion, not only with the saints, but also with our Lord as well. And so thus, when Paul says the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, he's not talking about death. Paul certainly doesn't view death in a very negative light at all. He actually talks about death quite often and quite freely, actually even longing for it if it means it saves his fellow men or if it means that God is proclaimed or if it's better for him to go than to be with them. Like Paul talks about death all the time. And in no way is it something negative or is it something that he's running away from. If anything, he's running to it. And so thus when he says, uh, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, it's not, he doesn't, it's not the Lord will rescue me from death. That's not it. It means the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed while I'm in this imprisonment that will cause me to be unfaithful or to not live for the, the glory of God or to not be on mission or not to continue to proclaim the gospel of truth. And likewise, that is also our hope as well, is that for all of our days, the Lord will deliver us from every evil deed. He will hold us fast. He will not let anyone fall between his fingers. All that he has saved, all that he has called, all that the Holy Spirit has sealed in the hearts of his followers who hear his voice, they will be delivered from every evil deed. There will be no evil deed that comes to pass in their lives that will cause them to uh, fall away from Christ. That those who are united with him are united with him forever into eternity. And thus that is also our hope and our assurance as well. And thus we should, dare I say, I look forward to death. And that we will be freed from these bodies of death. From the bondage of sin. From the brokenness of this world and dwell with um, our God forever and, and perfect unity as a body as well. And again, we see the sweetness of, again, what is the final greetings, verses 19 to 22, Paul's final words. Here, the, again, the loneliness of the past verses that we've covered, of people not being there for him, people deserting him, being abandoned, the Lord being with them. Now to this greet, Prisca and Aquila, in the household of Onesiphorus, 
Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophius, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And so we just hear again the importance of the fellowship of the saints, of sending greetings, sending hellos, both to and fro, and how the sweetness of that is truly what helps us endure and to persevere and to finish a race is by having brothers and sisters in Christ arm to arm, side by side, day by day, to exhort us, to encourage us. But nonetheless, even if we are isolated, even if we are on the lone, all alone on an island, God plus one is certainly a majority, as John Knox says. And thus, we have great confidence that it's not upon ourselves, nor is it upon an army to see us through to the end. But as Paul proclaims, it is the Lord who will certainly deliver us from evil and will usher us safely into his heavenly kingdom. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, that you are um, a God of your character. You are a God of your word, Lord. What it is you have said, what it is you have spoken, what it is you have promised is yes and amen in Christ. And thus, Lord, we are just constantly reminded by the brokenness of his body, by the shedding of his blood, that we are under the covenant that you have promised, that you have freely given, Lord, we are found under the shadow of your sovereign wings, God. Your spirit dwells within us. Your hand is upon us, O God. Lord, we have such great and assured confidence in the foundation of Christ, Lord, that um, this life is not our own, that this world is not our home. But Lord, we were meant to dwell with you for all of eternity in the house that you have gone forth to build uh, rooms for us, O God. And so thus, Lord, let it be our greatest desire, our greatest ambition, Lord, to need you to build to those rooms, Lord, by bringing others into the fold, by proclaiming the good news of the gospel, by seeing darkness being overthrown by light, by people set free from the bondage of sin and to come under the yoke and burden of Christ. And so please, Father, encourage us tonight. Give us confidence, Lord, that, Lord, we will see you face to face one day. No matter how great our sin struggle is, no matter how much we fear or we doubt or we second guess or our anxiety or stress get the best of us, oh God, please, Lord, just give us a, a sweet reminder here tonight in, in light of your word, oh Lord, that you are good to your promises. You are so good to your people, Lord. And even death has lost its sting and it has no, no longer has any hold over our lives, Lord. Um, we thank you for this. Let our hearts overflow and to the loudest of praise, to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ancients of days. We ask and pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.